From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The FDA is under pressure to release apparently alarming test results of weed killer residues in food. One chemist for the FDA out of Arkansas reported he couldn't find hardly anything that didn't have weed killer in it. Wheat crackers and granola and, and you know baby food oatmeal and, and honey all contained glyphosate. He said the only thing he found that didn't contain the weed killer was broccoli. Also, as the monsoons that India needs to grow food become more unreliable, farmers in Kerala are reviving age-old water management methods and replanting trees. Definitely it's a part of reforestation because we follow here rainwater harvesting and rain can happen only if there is forest. We are taking so many things from the nature so we should give something back to them. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Back in 2015, the Cancer Agency of the World Health Organization listed the widely used herbicide glyphosate as a probable carcinogen. But in December of 2017, the EPA under Scott Pruitt found no evidence that glyphosate is a human carcinogen and approved its continued use on both genetically engineered and non-GM crops. That hasn't reassured many in the public. California is battling in the courts to put a warning label on foods that contain traces of glyphosate, which is often sprayed on wheat, barley, and oats to kill them right at harvest to save time for farmers and make those crops dry more evenly. Some 80,000 or more tons of glyphosate is used yearly in America, so in 2016 the Food and Drug Administration began testing for the chemical in foods but has yet to issue a public report. Curious to learn what the FDA did find about glyphosate residues, journalist Carrie Gillum issued a Freedom of Information Act request to see the test results and wrote about it for The Guardian. Carrie Gillum, tell me, what did your FOIA request uncover? These internal emails that I've recently reported show that one chemist for the FDA out of Arkansas reported he couldn't find hardly anything that didn't have weed killer in it. He reported bringing food from home, wheat crackers and granola and, and things, and all contained glyphosate. He said the only thing he found that didn't contain the weed killer was broccoli. Now, a few years ago, 2015, the EPA put a list of the most common produce and the amount of glyphosate that's applied to these items in the course of, of growing them. We'll have a link to that list on our website, but talk to me about some of the foods that got the largest and the smallest amounts of, of chemicals containing glyphosate put on them? Well, it's really hard to know for sure if you're relying on government data because our government, USDA and FDA, routinely have skipped testing for glyphosate. They are charged annually with looking at thousands of food samples for residues of insecticides, herbicides, fungicides, and as I said, they routinely have skipped looking for glyphosate. What we've seen is that a number of consumer groups and academics and others have had to do their own testing to try to find out how much of this weed killer is in our food. And they're finding it in everything from, you know, the wine that you're drinking with dinner to, you know, snacks and cereals and crackers and cookies that we give our kids, you know, in, in their lunch boxes. Really, that it's this pervasive. And we have found from limited FDA evidence so far, found it in oatmeal, you know, baby food oatmeal and, and honey. Glyphosate is also used, you know, in conjunction with avocados and with spinach and things like that. 
it's dozens and dozens and dozens, more than 70 different, you know, popular food crops that are grown with the use of glyphosate. Carrie, the internal FDA emails that you obtained through the Freedom of Information Act reveal that at least one chemist found exceptionally high levels of glyphosate in a sample of corn, but didn't report it outside the agency. Talk to me about that, please. Yeah, so there are these legal limits. We refer to them as MRLs, maximum residue limits or maximum residue levels. And these are the legal limits set by the EPA for how much of a particular pesticide can legally be in a particular type of food. And for corn, uh, it's a 5.0 parts per million. And this scientist reported finding it at 6.5 parts per million, much higher than the legal limit. And what we saw in the internal email was that his supervisor was reassuring the EPA that they would not need to take action on that, that they would simply not consider that to be an official sample. In essence, they could ignore it. And, you know, we've seen a bit of a pattern of this. Um, The same scientist was the one who earlier had found glyphosate levels at, at very high levels, levels that should be considered illegal in honey. And again, his supervisors were essentially telling him not to worry about it, that, you know, it essentially would go away. They weren't going to focus on it. It wasn't going to be considered official in any reference. Wait a second. They have found levels that aren't legal. Why not report them? What's the motivation of the supervisor saying, nah, 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 you don't have to to tell other agencies about this? And this has been my frustration in uh, dealing with and investigating the FDA actions on testing for a number of years. They really have been reluctant to discuss this with the public, to release information to the public, to be accountable in any way to the public on this lack of testing, this lack of information. You know, they came under great criticism from the Government Accountability Office in 2014, specifically because they were skipping testing for glyphosate, this very widely used chemical that we know is in our food and our water. We know it's also in our body. But the FDA has been reluctant to be forthcoming with information. Now, they say they will release some data in their next report, which should be out at the end of this year or early 2019. So what you're telling me is that basically every one of us living in the United States is is likely consumed glyphosate residue on our food. What are the health concerns with that? And it would be great to know more about that too, right? (laughs) Without having a lot of data, without having biomonitoring, without being able to correlate, you know, intake, dietary intake of this weed killer with any particular human health impacts, you know, it's anyone's guess. Now, There's certainly a body of research out there showing that glyphosate has an array of human health harms. Different scientists have found it tied to kidney problems, liver problems, reproductive concerns. And of course, the International Agency for Research on Cancer tied it to non-Hodgkin lymphoma type of cancer. So it's classified as a probable carcinogen by that agency, if I understand that? That agency, an independent group of cancer scientists, classified it as a probable human carcinogen based upon an examination of toxicology and epidemiology research. Now, as part of your Freedom of Information Act request, you also found some information about the toxicity of products containing glyphosate, that is, formulated products, as opposed to simply straight glyphosate on its own. Tell me about that, please. Formulated products, something you would buy on the shelf at, at your, you know, 
lawn and garden store, for instance, those really have not undergone extensive toxicity testing by our government. The testing that they have required has been focused only on glyphosate by itself, which is the active ingredient, but not on the formulations and the mixtures of glyphosate with other ingredients. So it's only now that our national toxicology program is actually doing that testing. And what I've been able to find out and recently reported was that they are finding, of course, that these formulated products are much more toxic than glyphosate by itself, that they are killing human cells much more potent than what what has been studied for the last 40 years. But the government itself has said they don't even know what's in these formulations because they're trade secrets. The companies keep that information pretty close to the vest. In other words, the trade secrets are more important than public health. That's where we are today, it seems, yes. I mean, this all seems rather overwhelming. I mean, glyphosate is so common, I don't know how one avoids it. And then there's a question of it being mixed with other ingredients. And yet we still don't have a firm grasp on what the potential health effects of long-term exposure might be. What advice do you have somebody who's listening to us right now and is concerned? You know, I, I think if you're concerned about it, you do your best to educate yourself and to communicate your concerns, you know, to your representatives, both on a local level and a federal level, and to your neighbors, and uh, do the best you can to protect your health and to protect the health of the environment. And, you know, what I try to do, for instance, is I try to, to buy organic if possible. If I'm feeding my boys fresh berries in the morning, I don't want conventional strawberries because FDA data shows us there are at least 20 different pesticides commonly found in a bowl of strawberries. So I'm going to go organic. I'm going to go for the least processed and the least pesticide-laden foods that I can. A story by Carrie Gillum on the presence of glyphosate in the food supply recently ran in The Guardian. Carrie, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you for having me. In response to our request for comment, FDA press officer Peter Castle emailed, quote, preliminary results for samples collected under the 2016 special assignment showed no pesticide residue violations for glyphosate in any of the four commodities tested, soybeans, corn, milk, and eggs. His full statement is posted at our website, LOE.org. Time to look beyond the headlines now with Peter Dykstra. Peter's with Environmental Health News, SEHN.org, and DailyClimate.org, where there are all kinds of stories whizzing by. What do you have for us today, Peter? What's going on? Hi, Steve. You know, hogs are a big deal here in the U.S. Uh, Anybody who eats meat tends to love things like bacon and sausage, but they're even a bigger deal in China. And one of the things that's been a problem is building hog farms close to the population centers in China. So what's the solution? Uh, Here's something they're trying as a solution, although uh, it certainly raises a lot of questions. Hog hotels, hog high-rises. They're building hog farms, a thousand hogs per floor, as high as seven floors. And there are plans in the works for a 13-story hog high-rise. Hogs put out a lot of manure. What are they going to do with that? I don't know. You can't really build a 13-story hog waste lagoon. Uh, The sewage system, maybe? Well, we don't know. Uh, We certainly know that hog farms, no matter how they're laid out, uh, are concerns for pollution, uh, for disease uh, with the tightly confined hog populations, and also just for the smell. I don't know how that's going to work in a big city. 
Oh, sounds like a rather ugly pork barrel type scheme, doesn't it? Yeah. Hey, what else do you have for us? Next, we're going to talk about saltwater intrusion. It's a big deal in places like Southeast Asia, West Africa. It's a concern here in the uh, southeastern U.S. as freshwater is drawn up for agriculture and for drinking water, and it tends to suck the salt water in, particularly where there's sandy soil. The Salinas Valley is the latest concern for that in California, a huge agricultural area. Well, wait a second. Salinas isn't right on the ocean. Why is there a concern there? Um, it's as much as 30 miles away from Monterey Bay, and it's huge for um, cash crops like artichokes as well as lettuce. But uh, Monterey Bay, because of illegal wells being uh, drilled in the Salinas Valley for agriculture, Monterey Bay's saltwater is beginning to get into the water supply. And once you have an aquifer contaminated by saltwater, it becomes pretty much useless for drinking water or for agriculture. Oh, yeah. So that aquifer is right up to the coast itself. That's hard to reverse, isn't it? Uh, almost impossible. So uh, what do you have from the history of all for us today? Let's go back to May 18th, 1859. The man of many talents named John Tyndall. He was a physicist. He was a surveyor, a mountaineer. And um, he was the first to note that CO2, water vapor, and ozone can tend to hold heat into the earth, one of the earliest manifestations of what we now know as the greenhouse effect. Uh-oh, an early sign of global warming more than 100 years ago. Um, what else did uh, the scientist discover? He speculated on London as a heat island. This huge city surrounded by British countryside always tended to be a few degrees warmer than that countryside, and that was one of the first times we began to observe that as well. So how respected was he with these observations, or did people deny them? He was, uh, he was a great communicator. He was sort of the Carl Sagan or the Neil deGrasse Tyson of his day. He popularized science, but something that I'm guessing didn't happen, unlike climate scientists today, he didn't have climate deniers accusing him of only being in it for the money. <laughs> okay. Peter Dykstra's with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Uh, hey, thanks for bringing home the bacon, Peter. All right. Thanks a lot, Steve. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, LOE.org. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. Coming up, fighting for the wetland habitat of the tigers of Nepal. But first, this cool fix for a hot planet from Living on Earth's Jenny Doring. The snap, crackle, pop of hot lava flowing from Hawaii's Kilauea volcano is a reminder that the ground beneath our feet is very much alive. And even lava that cooled long ago into black, bubbly basalt can jump into action to help fight one of humanity's biggest challenges, rising levels of carbon dioxide. Basalt has the chemical potential to help take up carbon, as does peridotite, a greenish-black rock formed when magma cools deep in Earth's mantle. If you happen to have an August birthday, 
peridot, its glassy olive green cousin, is your birthstone. Basalt and peridotite aren't gemstones, but they show their special powers when they come into contact with carbon dioxide. If the CO2 is dissolved in water, as in a fizzy soda, the chemical reaction happens fast. Magnesium or calcium ions in the rock lock up the carbon dioxide as a solid carbonate, like chalk, or the Tums or Alka-Seltzer you might pop in your mouth after a rich meal. Earth scientist Jörg Mater led a pilot study that injected carbon dioxide deep into Iceland's basalt, with promising results. So if you go to the scientific literature, if you look at laboratory experimental data, and if you look in what the perception of scientists was, how fast mineralization occurs, it takes, you know, hundreds of years to thousands of years. And what we showed in this project was that within less than two years, all our CO2 we injected was mineralized. That project is now expanding, with support from several European research institutes. How feasible this method of capturing and storing carbon is, and what it would cost, are still uncertain. But basalt is common. It covers large areas of India, the Pacific Northwest, Iceland. In all, basalt covers more of the Earth's surface than any other rock type on this third rock from the sun. So in a twist of fate, ancient hot lava might just help our world chill out. That's this week's Cool Fix for a Hot Planet. I'm Jenny Doring. And if you have an idea for a cool fix for our hot planet, please send it our way. And we might put it on the air. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. Here's another cool fix for a hot planet, the UN Climate Treaty. In December, its 190 or so nations will come together in the cold country of Poland to try to move ahead with rules of the road to implement the Paris Climate Agreement of 2015. And before December, there are a series of meetings intended to iron out any obstacles and disagreements that could derail progress. Two weeks of those sessions just wrapped up in Bonn, Germany, and as usual, Alden Meyer of the Union of Concerned Scientists was there. Welcome back to the program, Alden. Thanks, Steve. Good to be with you again. So the latest round of climate talks wrapped up in Bonn recently. What was the mood? The mood was workmanlike. They were trying to reach agreement where they could on particular issues, but they also acknowledge, I think, that they're behind schedule, and that's why they've scheduled an extra week of negotiations in Bangkok, Thailand in early September to try to get through their part of the negotiation process before the annual climate summit in Poland this December. So what's the ultimate goal, really? Well, there's there's several goals for this year's climate summit. The most prominent is to reach agreement on what's called the Paris Agreement Work Program, which is a whole range of issues relating to implementation of the historic agreement reached in Paris three years ago. So things like what kind of information should countries provide on their so-called nationally determined contributions, which is the commitments they're making under Paris, Uh, What kind of information uh, should countries provide on how well they're doing on meeting the commitments? And how do you get ready to ratchet up ambition of the commitments that countries have already made, as everyone acknowledges is needed to meet the temperature limitation goals in Paris? So what needed to be done at this session before the big session and what, in fact, did get done? Well, they needed to try to work out draft negotiating text on the Paris rulebook. 
They made progress in some areas, such as compliance and the global stock take of ambition that's scheduled for 2023. But they really came to loggerheads on the issue of what kind of information countries should provide on their nationally determined contributions. And should that be differentiated between developed and developing countries, or should it be differentiated on the basis of the kind of commitments that uh, countries are making? And of course, you'll remember that the U.S. historically and other developed countries as well have had a real uh, opposition to the so-called firewall where developed countries have one form of commitment and developing countries have another. That's one of the reasons why the Kyoto Protocol from 1997 kind of broke down. And so when um, India, China, some of the other developing countries tried to reintroduce the notion of this firewall, it produced a strong reaction from the developed countries, and, and they really came to gridlock on that. So the big annual meeting will be right in the heart of coal country there in Poland and Katowice, the third time the Conference of the Parties has come to Poland. How does that affect these negotiations? Well, the, the real question is, can Poland, the presidency uh, of Poland, separate itself from the domestic interests of Poland? Because as you know, Poland has been resisting efforts within the European Union to increase ambition. They've been fiercely defending uh, their continued use of coal domestically. But as the president of the Conference of the Parties, you need to rise above your national position and try to facilitate agreement on behalf of all the countries attending. And I think that's the open question people have. So, of course, the U.S. has said it wants to get out of the Paris Climate Agreement, which it can't until 2020. But in the meantime, what has that done to the process? Well, no one is ratcheting down their commitments. We haven't seen a single country follow President Trump in saying they want to get out of the Paris Agreement. We haven't seen a single country uh, saying they're not going to try to meet the commitments they made. Of course, the proof will come a couple of years down the road when it comes time for countries to finally put forward their longer-term targets. So the real question is, will countries do more? The good news is I think countries are increasingly aware of the growing number of mayors and governors and business leaders and others in the United States that are part of the so-called We Are Still In movement, which is saying no matter what President Trump does, we're going to do our best to meet the U.S. commitments under Paris. And, and they're also aware, as you said, that President Trump can't formally withdraw until ironically one day after the next presidential election in November of 2020. So what role did the U.S. play at uh, these most recent climate talks, uh, given uh, Mr. Trump's uh, commitment to get out of the process? Well, they were still very active in the technical negotiations behind the scenes. For example, the United States co-chaired with China the negotiating working group on transparency and reporting requirements. So they were very active on that front. They obviously could not be helpful in the finance discussions, and there was a fair amount of anger from particularly developing countries to some of the positions the U.S. was taking by the way, I understood that the U.S. took a little bit of heat uh, at the session in Bonn because uh, President Trump had promised to say what he didn't like about the agreement. And so far, he actually hasn't said anything formally to the Paris Climate Agreement negotiators. Well, that's right. You remember last June when he made his Rose Garden speech announcing his intention to withdraw, he said that was subject to whether we could negotiate a better deal. And of course, you're right that in the time since then, he has not made clear what such a better deal would look like. 
And so I think that just showed that he really didn't understand what the Paris Agreement was, how it had been negotiated, how flexible it really was. And he was just uh, expressing a disagreement with it primarily because he thought it was too stringent on the United States and because, frankly, President Obama was the one that helped drive it through. Now, which countries have emerged with the vacuum that the U.S. has left behind? Well, it varies on issues, but I mean, obviously, China has been stepping up its engagement. They have a bit of a mixed bag, though. They are doing a lot domestically to shut down some of their older coal plants and and ramp up investments in renewable energy and efficiency. But at the same time, they are financing a lot of coal plant expansion across uh, Southeast Asia. The European Union is trying to step up, but of course, they have to get agreement among 28 member states, which makes it difficult. And there's no kind of a dual pillar like there was between the United States and China driving the, the Paris Agreement through to completion, as we saw under President Obama, President Xi back in 2014, 2015. That sort of uh, international leadership has not come together yet. And I think that's one of the real challenges. You know, to be blunt, sometimes when you mention these climate negotiations, the response is a big yawn. Oh, those aren't doing anything. Why is this a news story? What do you say? Well, I can see that point of view, how it's frustrating to people uh, watching uh, the slow pace in these negotiations. But I would say that Paris three years ago was a breakthrough in the sense that you had an unprecedented number of countries engaging in this process domestically, uh, bringing stakeholders together, business, labor, others, seeing what they could do. Of course, some did a better job of that than others. But you've achieved a, a kind of universal engagement on this process. And now we have to get it right. We have to mobilize climate finance in a transformational way, going beyond just the public finance to really affecting the trillions of dollars that are in play in the private sector. There's still work to do, but I think you can show how, in, in many cases, these negotiations have led to real changes on the ground in countries. It's just not far enough and fast enough. I think that's the frustration that's very legitimate. Alden Myers, Director of Strategy and Policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Alden, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. It was good to talk to you, Steve. Fresh water is a precious commodity that we divert and try to control, but sometimes we reverse those constraints and let water run free, and that can bring a flood of support for wildlife. Here's Mary McCann with today's Bird Note. In 2014, on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State, the dams on the Elwha River were removed. It was the largest removal of its kind in history. As the river ran free again, salmon from the Pacific were able to spawn upstream for the first time in 100 years, having a dramatic impact on American dippers, lively little riverside birds. Biologists with the Lower Elwha Clallam Tribe, the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center, and Ohio State University drew small samples of blood from dippers that they then released unharmed. Analysis of blood and feathers showed that birds with access to salmon have higher survival rates and the females have better body condition than those with no access to the fish. These dippers are also much more likely to stay on their home territories rather than expend energy to forage widely. And they're 20 times more likely to attempt raising two broods in a season, the most important contributor to population growth. 
So nutrients from spawned out salmon and salmon eggs are giving the river's ecosystem new vitality. I'm Mary McCann. For some photos, dip into our website, loe.org. For many people, Nepal conjures up images of the snow-capped Himalayas with Annapurna, K2, and Everest, the tallest mountain in the world. Those icy mountains make Nepal water-rich with 6,000 rivers and hundreds of lakes in a country that's roughly the same size as Iowa. Roughly 5% of Nepal's land is covered with marshes and other wetlands, critical habitats for endangered species and migrating birds. And even though Nepal has signed the Ramsar Convention to preserve wetlands, Ramesh Bushal, the Nepal editor for the South Asian online magazine The Third Pole, reports the government is doing little to protect these vital areas. He's on the line now. Ramesh, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you, Steve. So you recently wrote in an article in the Third Pole that wetlands are facing a lot of threats. What are the points of concern? The first thing is that people don't understand the value of wetlands. A lot of people think that it is wasteland, just waste, you know. There is no reason to conserve or protect. And people try to encroach those areas for example, the schools are built or you know, health posts are built. And governments also are not serious about protecting them. Their value has not been understood well by the communities, by the governments, by the authorities. That is where, where the problem starts. So I understand that the Ramsar Convention would protect the wetlands, but you're telling me that the government doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to that. In papers, there are wetlands which they have designated those wetlands as the wetlands of international importance. But, you know, only declaration doesn't make any differences. You have to invest on it. You have to mobilize the community. And you have to have a kind of a management plan. You have to invest your time and resources. So they have declared it, to be honest, it is. But there hasn't been much more focus on their protection. Tell me about some of the species that depend on the wetlands for habitat and for their drinking water. There are numerous wild animals which rely on wetlands. For example, Nepal, it is one of the hottest spots for the migratory birds. So birds, you know, travel all the way from Siberia and across the Himalayas and go to the southern plains of Nepal and even to India. So those birds fly for thousands of miles and then stay for a few months in Nepal's wetland and then return back after, after a few months, kind of a winter vacation, for example. And Nepal is a home to one of the you know, world's endangered species called one-horned rhinos. It is called Rhinoceros unicornis. And it is one of the largest population is in Nepal. They depend on wetlands for drinking water. If you talk about the tigers, there are only 4,000 tigers all over the world, Royal Bengal tigers. And Nepal has about 200. And these tigers also depend on those wetlands for drinking water or for other purposes. So I understand that uh, wetlands have a large cultural value in Nepal. Tell me about that, please. Most of the water bodies are near to villages. They worship God in those kind of wetlands. They go there, they do some rituals. In Hindu culture, there's open cremation. So when somebody is dead, they take that dead body to the riverside on the bank of river 
and then they burn it. Once you burn those dead bodies, it will flow down to the Ganges, which they call the Holy River. Then you are on the way to heaven. So water is very important even after your death. So Ramesh, what's the outlook for these uh, wetlands? What do you see as the future for the wetlands of Nepal? Uh, They are in sorry state, to be honest. And if we don't protect them, they won't survive for long. It's for sure. Because the area is decreasing. There are a lot of threats uh, already there. And a lot of people are saying that, you know, the rainfall pattern will change due to climate change. And if the rainfall pattern changes, then those, you know, wetlands may not get enough water to store. So there is the threat of the climate change in the years to come, as well as the human threat that has been in place for long and it is still continuing. I'm hopeful that, you know, more efforts will be applied. But, you know, if you don't do it now, then it will be too late. Ramesh Bhushal is the South Asia content coordinator for the Earth Journalism Network and Nepal editor for the South Asian online magazine, The Third Pole. Ramesh, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Coming up from water problems north of India to water worries farther south. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In South Asia, the monsoons are the key to growing and irrigating crops and filling wells with drinking water. Some South Indian states like Kerala typically get strong monsoons. As much as 10 feet of rain usually falls there every year. But in the last decade, the monsoons have become erratic, and there have been some severe droughts, perhaps due to the changing climate and shifting wind patterns. This has led Kerala's government to declare water conservation a top goal. And as Living on Earth's Helen Palmer discovered on a visit, reports of the monsoon status can lead the local news. The monsoon has finally reached mainland India with two consecutive days of rain in Kerala. But so far it's been a weak monsoon which missed its expected arrival date and arrived five days late amidst fear of drought-like conditions and an intense heat wave. Weak, unreliable rains can be a disaster for farmers. But on his plantation in Thrissur, where I meet him and his family shortly before the monsoon arrives, Virgis Tharakan has dug trenches across his steep hillside plot to corral the water. Fergus is tall and broad, in a spotless white shirt and dhoti, the broad length of cotton cloth many Indians wear knotted round the waist. His petite wife Sandhya and children wear Western clothes, jeans for 10-year-old Varsha and 6-year-old Varun, and a grey sweater, black pants and big sunglasses for Sandhya. She points up the slope to rows of banana plants with broad, glossy leaves, heavy with green fruit. It's basically a drought-affected area, and even though in Kerala we get uh, 3,070 millimeter rain, but here we get much lesser. As you can see, it's a slope kind of uh, geographical pattern here. It has done cross-trenching method, and uh, each and every drop of water which falls here is trapped and forced under the ground. It's partly a very old technique to retain rainwater on this steep three and a half acres. Now the slope is lush, with a tangle of grass and creepers among banana plants, and between each row, a trench about two feet deep. 
every four or five feet along the trench, there's an earthen mound, effectively creating a series of individual water storage pools, though they're dry now between the monsoons. And you can see that uh, we have a pond kind of thing here. During this season, like uh, November, December, January and all, it is kind of winter and it is windy and all. So usually what happens is that all the water sources dries up. But you can see it is filled with water still. And we are not uh, watering the plants with any kind of agriculture methods. All these bananas, they are standing here, they are giving fruits entirely on the rainwater he has harvested and stored under the earth. We walk over to the pond. It's deep with near vertical earthen sides and a frog swimming in its murky green water. It's not only Tharakan's own bananas that benefit from this water retention. Rainwater management expert Jose Raphael has watched this farm's development closely. Jose is serious and intense, and like many professional men I met in Kerala, he has a bushy moustache. Holding back the water like this, he says, solves a problem for the community at the bottom of the hill as well. 30 farmers living in the downhill, they've got 10 acres of land together. So uh, these farmers, they had the water scarcity for irrigating and for the drinking and domestic water requirements. Then the government gave a tube well, irrigating these 10 acres of land. It worked almost till 2012. So ultimately what happened that this tube well gone dried. But then Joe says, Fergie Tharakan took over the barren hill plantation above their fields and dug his transverse trenches that hold back the monsoon rains so they percolate slowly through the earth. And uh, this barren hill, uh, he made it as a, a, a garden. Then the rainwater harvesting in these contour trenches helped the people in the downhills. Uh, otherwise, this rainwater used to flow down and ultimately to reach the paddy fields and go to the sea, Arabian Sea. We head down the hill to check out the wells of the village at the bottom. And there's water in their depths as well, and clothes drying on the washing lines by the brightly painted houses. From the village, Jose Raphael takes me to his home, a simple bungalow where he shows off rainwater conservation for the household. It's a system of gutters and PVC pipes that feed the well in his garden, with a motor to pump water up to his large blue rooftop tank. He says people all used to collect rainwater, much as people around the world do now in barrels for their gardens. But increasing development and urbanization made it obsolete. Well, uh, in, the, in the past history of uh, India, India used to collect rainwater for the uh, domestic uses. Then what happened that the shift took place in the 1915s, this modernization and pipe supply and dams and canal irrigation systems. When the people start to get the water in the, in the homesteads with the piped water supply systems, the people tend to ignore their um, homestead wells. So the traditional wisdom of harvesting rainwater within the homesteads, the people tend to forget. And the neglect of the old ways, so now the rainwater just runs off to the sea, isn't the only water headache for local officials. Deforestation in the once thickly wooded mountainous western Ghats has reduced the amount of water these western highlands retain and increased erosion. But Jess Raphael works for a non-profit that got busy. We got a project in Trishul District Administration called Marapolima, that means the bountiful rain. So we are trying to harvest this rainwater as well as we promote the homestead watershed approaches so that the rainwater in the homestead is uh, conserved. 
We visit one of his projects at a public government high school, where Jose Raphael, smartly dressed in a well-pressed green cotton shirt and grey slacks, is greeted warmly. His team supplied equipment to collect that bountiful rain for the school. Minnie Colat, a no-nonsense economics teacher in black, with a striking geometrically patterned black and white scarf, explains. The roof's water will be connected by the uh, pipes and it will connect it to the uh, wells to the filter so that it will increase the level of groundwater. Water is an elixir of life because there is no option to water. Mini Colat's students helped to put up the gutters and connect the pipes that funnel the water through charcoal filters into the huge well in the school courtyard. That well now supplies all the basic needs of the school. And 18-year-old Fabian, tall and gangly in his school uniform, check shirt and blue pants, tells me the pupils help the community around the school as well. That Maripalama scheme was to reduce the scarcity of That Maripalama scheme was to reduce scarcity of water in that area. In our area, there are a lot of poor people, so by connecting the pipes and by using the filter and the motor, etc., we can give water. Fabian tells me the NGO supplied gutters and pipes, and the students helped set them up for their own parents, and on the roofs of many manual laborers who live around the school, who don't have the cash to buy their own system. Jose Raphael says he's proud of Maripolima's success. We have done more than 25,000 well recharging units in Kerala, and with this, the government subsidy, that will help the people uh, to help recharge their homestead wells. So it, it has be become the role model across the state. So that's the success of this uh, piloting in Trishur district. That's what I'm happy about. But if some townsfolk need a refresher course in traditional methods of managing water, those ways are still widely practiced in the countryside by farmers like Giresha at Wadikancheri village, a short drive from the high school down onto the low-lying coastal plain. The guard dogs greet us boisterously at Goresh's farm. He cultivates six acres of rice and coconuts organically on land his father and grandfather farmed before him. Beside the cowshed, with its dozen indigenous milk cows, Goresha points to a special breed of chicken pecking about in the farmyard. Uh, we locally call it Karingori. It's completely black. Uh, see, everything is black, and even the meat is black. Really? Yeah. Gosh, black and chicken. It, and uh, the bone, internal organs, huh? even the blood. <laughs> Garesha tells me it's important to him to preserve these heritage breeds, the chickens as well as the cows. We cross the yard to the cow shed, where one of his workers is hosing down the floor. And he tells me that water drains down to his organic paddy fields, which provide not only rice, but also hay for the cows. Uh, I feed hay, mainly hay, because I got the paddy fields. So the hay is here. So basically you get the hay, the rice straw from the paddy field, and you feed that to the cow. And the uh, cow dung as a fertilizer I'm using back to the fields. So I don't have to purchase fertilizers. As well as the runoff from the cowshed, Goresha uses rainwater during the dry season for irrigation. Some of his fields lie below sea level, he says, and in monsoon season they flood and he can harvest fish. He says it's vital to maintain the level of fresh water in the paddy to feed the local aquifers and hold back the salt. Rising sea levels are also increasing salinity in fresh water at the coast and percolating into drinking water wells there. 
On top of that, increasing development, especially for tourism, has led to widespread destruction of one of the main protectors of Kerala's coastline, the mangrove swamps. That's a big worry for Ravi Panakal, whom I meet about five miles from Goresha's farm at an airy barn on muddy flats by the Arabian seashore. Here he teaches school kids about the importance of the mangroves. There were so many mangrove forests in India, but in the, during the course of time, now, people for their selfish interest, own interest, they have removed all the mangroves. Panakal, a trim retired army colonel, heads the NGO Nature, Environment and Wildlife Society of India that gets the local schools involved in replanting the mangroves. A longer series of muddy trenches filled with brackish water, they've set out rows of baby mangrove plants, planning to grow them up until they can be planted along the shore for their many benefits. Mangroves cleans the water. Besides, it is the, the habitat of a lot of birds, even the migratory birds also. Besides, the biodiversity, there are special species of a lot of uh, plants, animals and such things. As well as cleaning up the water, mangroves help prevent erosion, blunt the force of storms and provide a nursery for baby fish. If we keep the mangroves in the belt of this area, the fishing, because actually these people were making livelihood from the fishes, uh, that will improve. And besides, the coastal area will be protected and the water will be purified. So, not salty water, clean water for drinkable water. Protecting species and conserving clean water are a chief aim of the government's Green Kerala initiative. What Ravi Panakal wants is a nature reserve to do just that on this swampy parcel of coast. This is 234 acres of land is there. What we want, actually we want to protect the area, protect the livelihood of the people, and to save the mankind as well as the existing species. It's lying for the government, but the government is not interested in it. Tourist condos and hotels and restaurants bring in cash to undeveloped areas like this, and that's what appeals to the government and local businesses, Panakal tells me. But still, he says, nature will have the final say. If we can build a, a building here and get more money, I'll get more money, but this area, it is going to be spoiled, and the next generation, that will be suffered. They don't want to think about the nature. If nature loses, we are going to die. The next generation cannot survive without water, without this nature. It is very, very important. We must keep it up. Back at his banana farm in the highlands, Fergie Tharakan and his family are also keeping nature up by reforesting, which helps bring rain to these dry hills. Some of the plants stand in the shade of native teak trees that also grow here. Sandhya says they're planting even more not to harvest, but for their children, Varsha and Varun, and to retain the water, protect the soil, and fight global warming. Sandhya, tell me about the teak. Uh, it was here when we bought this plot, actually, and uh, we don't have any plans to cut it because it amounts to deforestation. And you can see it's a, a sloped kind of geography here, so it has to be here to hold the soil together to prevent soil erosion. So you are planting more? Yeah, definitely we plant more. And definitely it's a part of reforestation because we follow here rainwater harvesting. And rain can happen only if there is forest. And is this because the government says you have to reforest or is it something you want to do? No, it's from our, our kind of ideology we are doing this. We are taking so many things from the nature, so we should give something back to them. 
It's not always taking. Giving also is a part of life. The children, 10-year-old Varsha and 6-year-old Varun, scramble up the steep ditches under the trees, and I scramble after. Varsha tells me she's already trying to give back to the family. I wanted to grow many things, but I thought about starting off small by growing some bean plants. So I planted them maybe three or four months ago, and now they have grown a lot, and uh, now they are giving off beans, and we are already plucking a few of them and using it for our curries and all. So basically, you are growing beans that the family could eat? Yeah. Fergie's her father, smiles at her proudly. He says growing things is nothing less than the key to the future. He grabs my hand urgently and struggles with English as he tries to get his big idea across. The children everywhere should learn farming. Peaceful world. A standard uh, studying agriculture, one subject, compulsory, all over world. After then, peaceful world. Sandhya helps him out. So, so what he ultimately aims is world peace through agriculture, through cultivation, through farming. World peace through tending the land. It's a grand dream. But in their small plot of paradise, the Tharakan family is doing its bit, growing bananas and vegetables, restoring the soil, bringing back the trees, and saving the rain. For Living on Earth, I'm Helen Palmer in Kerala, India. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Jamie Kaiser, Hannah Loss, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Ainsley O'Neill, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade and Jake Rigo. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. And from Solar City, America's solar power provider. Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI. Public Radio International.